that struggle in that battle. They struggle with all the things that we saw in that skit, but adults struggle with greed and selfishness and imprisonment to anxiety and all kinds of issues that we have. So this message is for everybody this evening. And I have felt God's presence here. I'm so thankful for young people. It was a youth group like this where I was called into ministry. What you're doing here is awesome. You guys are, I can sense God's spirit here, so I'm just excited. It's a perfect atmosphere to bring this message. And I believe with all my heart, as we've been seeking God, fasting and praying, that God is coming after you tonight. I believe that. God's coming after you. Reminds me of a situation uh, when my nephew, Noah, was he's 11 years old now, but when he was about three or four years old, my mom and I took him over to the Irwin McDonald's. Now, this was before it was remodeled. It is kind of cheesy now. But back then, you know the plastic tube set up? It was like there were miles of tubes back then, okay? It was really cool. And Noah had never been up in the tubes before. So my mom and I take him over there for dinner, I think it was, the day after I was done teaching. And he asked us for the first time, can I go up in the tubes? My mom looked at me, and I looked at my mom, and we were like, okay, we'll let him go. So Noah takes off up into the tubes. Now, he was kind of a timid type of character back then. He gets up in the tubes, and it was only about a minute, a minute and 30 seconds. We heard a blood-curling scream. Noah is lost in the tubes, and he doesn't like it. My mom looked at me, and I looked at her, and I knew what was about to happen. I was going up the tubes. I had my work clothes on from teaching, and quick, quick as could be, I went up, I'll never forget it, into that yellow tube. Now, those of you who took apologetics activated know that I have absolutely no sense of direction. Can't find my way out. Uh, I can't find my car coming out of Walmart, for example. I frequently tell people I'll leave Cole's parking lot, forget where I've parked, get out my cell phone and pretend to be having a conversation because I look so ridiculous walking around and around the parking lot. So with no sense of direction, the grown person that I am tending towards claustrophobia up I go into the tubes. Now, I'm up there for myself like maybe two or three minutes, and sweat just starts to pour off my body. There's static electricity in the tubes, so my naturally curly hair begins to stand on end. There are kids, it was a busy day, there are kids in the tubes staring at me like I was, like I had two heads. What is this monster doing up here? And I'm like shaking, I'm so nervous, and I don't know where to go. I'm like, do you know where that little kid is that's screaming? Tell me which direction to go. Sweat pouring off my face. Now I'm completely claustrophobic, and I finally caught this one little girl, and she said, you need to go that way. So I made a left into that tube, and guess what? It was the slide. I'm coming down the slide now. Here I come, hair standing on end, sweating, fearful look on my face. And down at the bottom are all these adults just smiling at me. And guess who else is down there? Noah. How you doing, Aunt Shelley? <laughs> he found his way out. But anyway, that story, it, it, I always love that because it reminds me of what God does for us. I'm going to tell you something. God is coming after you tonight. I believe that. We have been praying and fasting and seeking God's face because he has brought the exact perfect group of people to this church tonight to hear this message. He's coming after you. And just like there was nothing, no embarrassment, no trouble, no fear of claustrophobia that was going to stop me from going after my nephew when he cried, God hears you when you cry out to him. 
Amen? When you cry to him, he's coming after you. And there's a reason you're here this evening, so I want you to trust him for what he's going to show you. Now, this message tonight is titled, The Work of God. A very simple title, right? But a title that has been lost in the Christian culture today. I don't know if you're aware of it, but in 2005, a gentleman by the name of Christian Smith and a uh, co-writer, they did some studies, and they found out that in the Christian culture today, people largely believe, now this is especially, it was a study done on teenagers, young people, largely today, people believe in a form of Christianity, well, I say Christianity in quotes, called moralistic, therapeutic deism, is what our young people have been taught to believe. Now, deism basically means there is a God, he created everything and then set it into motion, but he doesn't have much to do with us in our everyday lives. Moralistic in the sense that our young people basically believe today that if you're good enough, how many times have you heard this in interviews? You know, people are interviewed, someone's just passed away. People honestly believe that when you die, if you were good enough, right, you'll go to heaven. Therapeutic in the sense that and I see this everywhere, Christian television, mega churches, teaching that if you're truly a Christian, ultimately what that's going to mean is you are going to be happy. God exists to make you happy. I want to tell you tonight, God's goal for me is not that I be happy, it's that I be holy. Happiness is a byproduct. You don't get to heaven by being good, And deism is not what we believe in. We are theists. We believe in a God who made us and is intimately involved in our lives. And he showed us so by sending Jesus to invade this space-time continuum and get down and get dirty with what we have to deal with. Amen? So we have to come against this false teaching that is not in the world today. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the... Church of Jesus Christ. This false thinking that says you should be good, God wants you to be happy, and everything's going to work out in the end, but he doesn't have much to do with everything right now. I believe there are people who are living their lives kind of schizophrenic. They're Christians, they've grown up in the church, they attend church, and they're schizophrenic because they just can't shake that feeling that something is not quite right. You still struggle with the guilt and wondering what's going on. And for young people, it's even worse. So I want to talk tonight about the work of God. Because I'm here to tell you something that can be very freeing for you. Your salvation is not about you. It's about what God does. If I thought my salvation depended on me, that's not good. It depends on God. This is about his work. Now, what's exciting about this message, some of you may think this is exciting, and some of you may think, oh, that doesn't sound too fun. This entire message is going to come from the Old Testament. How many of you know that the Old Testament is as much the word of God as the New? Amen. As a matter of fact, the New Testament is really only 3% new material. It's built completely on the Old Testament. And we have lost in our culture today the knowledge that the Old Testament is as much inspired in the Word of God as the New. In fact, the reason I really love the Old Testament, let me give you an example. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of faith. 
works, lest any man should boast. That is a very important piece of theology. And we learn it in the New Testament. And we need to know that we need to study it. But I'm going to show you tonight through this message how those two verses are shown in historical picture form in the Old Testament. See, I believe we miss a lot in the Old because God in the Old Testament, he is foreshadowing or showing types of what he's going to reveal in the theology of the New And how many of you are visual learners, you know? How many of you learn better by stories and visual things? I like that kind of stuff. And I'm going to share this message completely tonight from the book of Exodus. I'm going to comfort you with the fact that salvation and everything you need to live every day comes from God and not yourself. Do you think that would be a freeing message tonight? Totally from God. And this comes from the book of Exodus. So let me take you back there. I'm assuming that probably most of you have some familiarity with the Bible, but I'm going to give a little background explanation. We're going to start back in the book of Exodus, which is set around 1400 B.C. So we're talking about almost 3,500 years ago. Now, the world power at that time was Egypt. Egypt was the world power. Pharaoh was the king. And what had happened over the course of time, do you remember the story of Joseph, how he gets sold by his brothers into Egypt? So God's people, the Israelites or the Hebrews, they find themselves in Egypt through a series of events. And what started out as about 70-some people multiplies. They begin raising their children in the land of Egypt, and we have them multiply to about 600,000 men, not including women and children. So he goes from 70-some to now two and a half to three million Hebrews are living in the land of Egypt. Now, the Israelites are God's chosen people. What was so bad about their existence back then was that they were what? Who knows? Slaves. Very important word here. The Israelites were slaves in the land of Egypt. Now, They weren't just servants, you know, serving tea and crumpets to the Egyptians. They were slaves. These people actually had to, for the Egyptians, they made the bricks. They worked in brick and mortar. They built all the great structures of Egypt. They worked out in the fields. They did all of the heavy labor for the Egyptian people. Now, I know that if I ask you how many of you would like to be a slave... Anybody? But you know what? As Christians, so many of us are. We're still acting like we're slaves. See, this is what I'm talking about, the illustration of the Old Testament. What God was actually showing us, I want you to to remember this. The Israelites in Egypt was a foreshadowing or a type of what it's like when a person is enslaved to sin. You with me? That was a horrible existence for those Israelites. They could do nothing about their position. Wouldn't it be terrible? They had little babies, and when babies were born, I don't even know how much joy they had because they knew their child was being born into slavery. And there was no hope out of that life. It was a life with taskmasters over you and mistreatment and no freedom and no hope of ever getting out of it. It was a terrible, terrible existence. And you know what else is a terrible existence? To have sin be your master. To be enslaved 
to sinfulness. What I love about God and the Old Testament is this. God exists outside of time and history. And it amazes me that he has superintended all of that history to show a perfect picture of what he's all about. So, these Israelites are enslaved to the Egyptians. They have no hope. That's a type of what it's like when we are enslaved to sin. And when I say enslaved to sin, we tend to think about sins like addictions, right? Addictions to substance and to alcohol, which are very real and valid points of temptation. Addictions to sexual immorality, to pornography. We can think and easily identify all those things. But I wonder how many of us in this sanctuary tonight have become enslaved to anxious thoughts, have become enslaved to pressure to succeed in career, have become enslaved to basic selfishness. How about that one? I battle that every single day. And our young people are living in a culture, a society that is entertainment-oriented, that teaches us to think first about self. And if you wake up some mornings and wonder why you're most miserable, it just might be that you are enslaved to selfishness and you don't even realize it because the culture hides it from us so well. But it is a horrible and terrible situation to be enslaved and be it, not be able to free yourself from the thought patterns of selfishness, self-centeredness, not caring for others, anxious thoughts. And that's what this is a picture of. And as we see God deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and they go to the Canaan land, the Canaan land was a type of heaven. But until they got to heaven, where did they have to travel? Through the through the desert, through the wilderness. That's the life that we're living now. We get delivered from sin and slavery and we go through the wilderness. And this is, this is the kind of picture that we're setting up. Now, um, the man who God uses to affect freedom for the Israelites, his name is what? Moses. Okay? Moses is a really cool kind of guy. He grew up in the land of Egypt. And do you remember what happened? Pharaoh, as the Israelites multiplied, Pharaoh got so afraid that these Hebrews were going to take over the land of Egypt and maybe gain too much power that eventually what he did was he put out an edict, I want all the male children, babies, to be drowned in the Nile River. Do you remember that? But Jochebed, who was a woman of God, here's what she did. She said, you know what, I believe God has a plan for my son. And she hid baby Moses. And then she built a little basket and she sailed him down the same Nile River that he should have been murdered in. Isn't that ironic? (laughs) See, the same sins and problems that the devil wants to kill you with is the same river God can float your hope down on. Isn't that beautiful? The same life that God is, that, that the devil is trying to destroy is the same place God's going to sail your basket of hope. And I believe that many people in this sanctuary tonight, we may be church attenders, we may be Christians, we may be afraid to tell other people, I need a basket of hope. I'm enslaved to something. But that's what she did. She sailed that basket of hope down the Nile River. And ironically, but of course in God's providence, 
Moses' little basket ends up at at Pharaoh's daughter's hands. Isn't that incredible? And so she decides to raise this little baby. And in God's providence, he, Moses, being a Hebrew, is allowed to grow up with all the riches and the education and just like he was an Egyptian. But in his heart, all the time, he knew who he was. And God brought him to that realization. And I'm sure he started struggling with that, maybe as some of our young people do in the world that we live in today. You're a Christian. You know it. But you kind of struggle with that sometimes, don't you, in a world that's gone crazy. But he knew who he was. And here's what happened. He became so disturbed by what he saw happening to God's people that one day as an adult he goes out into the field and he sees one of his people being beaten by an Egyptian. Do you remember this? And in a moment of anger, he sins, and he killed that Egyptian. Then Moses flees to Midian, and he spends 40 years in the wilderness while God continues to deal with him and prepare him for something great, right? Anybody ever feel like you're in the wilderness being prepared for something great? Okay. God works on Moses. He has the encounter with the burning bush. And some of this I have to skip over quickly or else I'd be preaching, you know, for four hours, which I can do, by the way. Right? Chris Barron knows I can do that. Okay, but I won't. So he gets, he, he gets called by God, encounter with the burning bush. And now here's where this is going to get really interesting. This is where it should really hit your heart because I know it hits mine. Moses. God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And by the way, he hates you for what you did. I want you to go to him, and I want you to tell him that he's supposed to let all three million of my people go. All the free labor, tell him, let them go. I want them to worship me. This guy named Moses, okay, he's going to go up against Pharaoh and say this. But what I love about Moses is, after he struggles with God a little bit, he decides, yep, That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go face the biggest, nastiest man there is, and I'm going to tell him, you're supposed to let all your free labor go because God wants us to go worship in the wilderness. He was risking his life, you know that. But he says yes. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, this is what's supposed to happen, Pharaoh. And doesn't the story go like this? Pharaoh looked at him very kindly and said, well, certainly, I'll let them go. No, no. Pharaoh is a godless pagan man. In in Egypt, they're worshiping animals. These people don't care about the Hebrew God. And Pharaoh, when Moses says this, Pharaoh says, are you kidding me? Do these Israelites not have enough to do that they're sitting around dreaming about being free? Give me a break. And I'm going to show you from God's own word what happened because this is something to really think about and to apply to your life. So after Moses, in complete obedience, does exactly what God told him to do, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You're not to reduce any of it. It's because they're lazy. That's why they're saying, let's go worship our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so they will pay no attention to these lies. Now, I don't know if you read the Bible as I do. 
the way that I think about things, but this, God means for me to apply this to my life. And let me tell you how this hits me. Moses did exactly what God told him to do. And what happened? Things got, it got worse. Really bad. Matter of fact, these people who had to make bricks with straw were now not going to be given the straw. In addition to going out and being beaten and whipped and working in the hot sun to make the bricks, now they've got to go get the straw to make the bricks and still make the bricks in the same amount of time and as many as before. And if you read the account, the Bible says the taskmasters had to, they were beaten. The taskmasters who were over the people were beaten. And I'm sure many Israelites grew ill. I'm sure some died. And this was a miserable, miserable situation. And I'm sure that the Israelites thought to themselves, what's up with God? And I'm sure Moses, who put his life on the line, who did everything he was supposed to do, thought, What is up with God? Do you agree with me? This is historical truth. Now, here's how it applies to our lives. I want to tell you something right now. And I am learning this in a major way. I'm in the furnace right now in a major way. I want to tell you something. You may be walking in complete obedience to God, and you're crying out to Him saying, God, help me. God, I want to do the right thing. And so you sail off and you start doing the right thing. I mean, you are seeking God. You are looking for Him to move big time. You are doing everything He said. And do you know what happens? The enemy rages. The enemy rages. When God is about to move, this is a very important point here, when God is about to move, The enemy rages in fear. Every time I have a speaking engagement coming up and I pray in my house and I start seeking Lord, right before any speaking engagement for ministry, you would not believe what happens to my life. You would not believe the mental attack, the lack of sleep, the physical attack that comes on my body, the circumstances to distract me. I don't know if you've ever been there, but when you really mean to seek God, look out. It's going to get nasty. Why am I saying that? Because there are people sitting in this room from young to old. You need to know, don't give up hope. If you're seeking God and you're obeying Him and it's getting worse, that actually means God is about to do something awesome. Because when God is going to move, the enemy rages. You know, in this skit tonight, you saw a word on the, on the screen behind them. It said battle. Remember that scene when the big battle was happening? we got to remember something, Christians. Despite what Christianity is teaching today, what you read in the bookstores and what you see on TV and all that stuff, despite what people want to say about Christianity, we are in a battle zone. This is a cosmic battle for the lives and souls of human beings. And the enemy is going to try to get us. And we better quit playing around and thinking God just wants us to be prosperous and healthy and happy and sit around and enjoy all his blessings. That's for heaven. This is a battleground. 
And if you are going through a severe battle with the enemy and he's raging against you and you, you think, what a, I'm trying to seek God. I'm trying to do what he wants me to do. What's happening here? Don't you be discouraged because God is about to move. Amen? So the people get upset. Moses gets upset. You can read it in the end of Exodus chapter 5. Moses goes to God. He says, why are you doing this? I'm obeying you and you haven't delivered your people. And in fact, everything's getting worse. What are you doing? And this is what the Lord comes back and says. And this is what he's saying to you tonight, my friends, and to me. Believe me, whenever I preach a a message, the first person it goes to is me. This is what God is saying. He said to Moses, you go to the sons of Israel and this is what you say to those whining little babies. (laughs) Say this. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. How many times is the word I used there? Who's observant? Four times God says, I am going to do it. Herein lies the problem today in Christianity. We are letting our young people think, and we are believing because of our culture, that we affect the victory. We do not. God does. He says, I am the Lord. Now notice how Lord there has all capital letters. When you see Lord with all capitals in the Bible, it's very different from Lord that doesn't have all capitals. Without all capitals, it means master. It can apply to earthly masters or God. When you see all capitals, it's the same root as the word Jehovah, which is a derivation of the word Yahweh, which is a derivation of two words. When God said, when Moses said, God, who should I say sent me? What did God say? Tell them, I am. Don't you love it? God's the only person that can get away with saying that. They want to know who sent you? Tell them this. I am. That's what that means when it's all capitals. It, in other words, it means I had no beginning. Nobody made me. I don't answer to anybody. I have all power. I know exactly what I'm doing. Tell the people that the self-existent God of the universe who answers to no one is going to do this for you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Whatever it is that you're seeking God for, don't give up. Because when the enemy is raging, it's proof that God is about to move. Now, so we've made two points so far. And the second one is, it is God that has to take on the enemy. I can't do it. Believe me, I've tried. How many of you have ever tried to take on the enemy in circumstances in your life? You try to move the mountain instead of letting God do it? Nasty business. Teaching us dependence. Now, how did God affect this deliverance? Because things are getting worse for the Israelites. God better come through, right? Do you remember how he started, what he did? He sent the plagues, okay? Now, God starts with nine plagues. He starts sending these terrible, terrible things against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And you would think that Pharaoh would give in after a few of them. You know what I mean? Like when your whole water supply turns to blood and you can't drink it and it smells, you would think that would be enough, but it wasn't. 
When frogs start coming out by the billions of the Nile River, and I, you know, sometimes when we think of the plague of frogs, we kind of like, ah, that's really something. No, I mean, this is disgusting. This is gross. These frogs came up out of the Nile River, and the Bible makes it clear they were everywhere. There were so many of them that they would go into the people's homes. They were even in their bread bowls, the Bible says, in their beds. There were so many. The surface area just covered everything. There were frogs everywhere. And when God allowed the frogs to die, the people, the Egyptians, would have to pile them up in giant heaps, and their bodies would rot. There was nowhere to put them. And the smell, they said, would have been just almost killed you of the rotting bodies. You would think at that point, Pharaoh might say, maybe I should let these people go. You know, like, their God's pretty nasty with us. No. Kept coming. You have the hail. You have the plague of darkness. You know, three days of, like, midnight, you couldn't even see the person right in front of you. That's scary stuff. They say that one of the worst plagues would have been the plague of the locusts. Whatever the plague of hail did not destroy, the locusts came in in clouds, the Bible says, in clouds. They would come in, and whatever was left from the hail, any trees, anything green, those locusts just devoured it. Can you imagine seeing that happen? And then Bible scholars tell us that there were so many locusts that at night when they would rest, They would be four to five inches high on the ground. And when you would walk, you would have to crush them. And the stench was unbearable. Why am I emphasizing the gross nature of the plagues? Because you would think that that would do it, wouldn't you? Seriously. Now, I'm getting to a very important point here. I'm I'm trying to teach you how to take the Old Testament and apply it to real life. This is God's truth. The Old Testament is real and alive. You would think that that would do it. But in God's providence, it wouldn't. The only plague that had any hope of working was the plague of death. After all nine plagues, God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Israelites, get ready. Because remember, the Israelites are living in a small portion of Egypt called Goshen. He says, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. Tell the people, on a certain night, I, God, am going to send the death angel. Now, let me just stop here and say something. It is God that is in charge of death, not the devil. Right? And that should be comforting to us. God says, I, God, am going to send the death angel on a given night. And that death angel, and I can't imagine, because this is real history, what that possibly would have looked like. He said that the death angel is going to go through Egypt house by house. Could you imagine? And as it went to each house, God said, the firstborn child and animal in every house is going to die. Firstborn son, firstborn of the cattle, doesn't matter if it's the firstborn of the Pharaoh or the prisoner or the servant, every firstborn man and animal is going to die in every home when my death angel comes around. Could you picture what that would be like methodically and slowly that angel comes down the street and you hear shrieks and cries as they see it's true. They're dying, they're dying, they're dying. 
God says to the Israelites, there's one way that you can protect yourself from what is going to happen. You need to take a one-year-old lamb without any blemishes, without any defect, any illness. Take that lamb, and I want you to slay the lamb. You're going to eat it later that night, but I want you to slay the lamb. I want you to take its blood, pour it in a basin. Then you get a branch of hyssop, and you take that branch, and I want you to dip the branch in the blood and paint the doorpost and the lintel of your door with blood, the top and the sides. It's kind of strange stuff, isn't it? God says, but if you do that, when I see the blood... I will pass over your house. Let's look at this straight from the scripture. I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I'll strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I'll execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you like the Egyptians. Now, I'm glad that you can hear a pin drop in this sanctuary because it's the Holy Spirit. This is big-time truth right here. Why? With the frogs and the lice and the darkness and the boils, why would none of that do it? Why did it take death? What kind of sick God are we serving here? A beautiful God. Of course it took death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. Let's go back to basics and know that we were created by God. And when I rebel in my selfishness and live my life the way I want, outside of His will, there is nowhere else to turn. He's the maker of life. Do you get it? It's not like God is sitting up in heaven trying to be mean. You don't want to serve me, so you're going to die. No, it's more like this is the plan. There is no other plan. If you rebel against me, I'm the one who made life to be the way it's supposed to be. It only works right if you serve me. So if you're not going to, you are going to. You're going to die. The wages of sin is death. So (laughs) check this point out and let this sink in. What God is showing us in Exodus is there is a prescription for deliverance from sin. And you know what it is? It's death. It's like you go to your doctor and you say, Doctor, I can't escape my own sinful thoughts, my own wrong thought patterns, my own actions. I'm a prisoner of myself. I can't get out of this slavery to this addiction, to this habit, to these thoughts, to this way that I am, to this raunchiness inside of me. What am I going to do? And the doctor writes a prescription. Here's the answer, God says. It's death. It's going to take death. Why? God was foreshadowing the only death that could save us, the death of his own Son. I can't pay for my sin. I was never supposed to try. I've got to die where somebody's got to die in my place. And I believe Yvonne Simmons loves me a lot. But even if she tried to die for me, it wouldn't matter because she's a sinner too. So God sent his own son to die. And that is the death that spewed the Israelites into freedom. That's the death that will spit you out of the slavery you're in 
and give you the freedom you need. Amen? God's prescription for deliverance is death. That's what Exodus is showing us. And when we bring this down to a personal level, God's prescription of blood brings safety. God had to bring death to bring deliverance. But as all this death is coming upon the people, how is he going to save the ones who want to serve him? What's he going to use? Blood. Blood. Now, I have a picture here to put up of what this might have looked like. These people had to take the blood of a one-year-old lamb without defect and paint it over the doorposts of their houses. Okay? What is God saying? Do you remember in John chapter 1 when John the Baptist was out in the wilderness? He saw Jesus coming towards him. What did he say? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians, we're told that Jesus literally is the Passover Lamb. Now, if you're sitting here tonight, this is one of the most pivotal moments of this message for those of you who may be struggling with sin. You either aren't saved or you are a Christian, but you're struggling, you're enslaved, you don't feel free because you just haven't been taught the truth. This is all you have to do to be delivered. Accept that it is the death of Jesus that pays for your sin and protect yourself with his blood. They had to paint the blood over the doorposts. We put the blood over our hearts. Isn't that beautiful? It wasn't, there wasn't anything magical about the lamb's blood on the door. You know what it was? It was the fact that those people by faith believed what God says I need. That's what I need, so I'm going to do it. And if you by faith right now in this moment, even as you're sitting there, I don't have to pause and like have prayer time right now in the middle of the message. If you right now in this moment will believe that that is the truth, and you will ask as you're sitting there, Jesus, right now, Jesus, put your blood over my heart so that when it comes my time to die, death really has no effect on me. And I love that because someday unless the rapture happens first, which I per- God and I have a deal. It's going to happen before I die. Okay? I do go around teaching the heaven event. I think it's the least that God could do. You know. But anyway, for those of you who are going to pass away before, you know, the rapture, um, seriously, if they put my body in the ground, I'm not dead. I'm more alive than I ever was because the blood of Jesus is over my heart. And it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. People can walk around like zombies. They're living, but on the inside they're dead. You need to be safe from that spiritual death. You want to be set free to actually live? Just put the blood of Jesus over your heart. Isn't that beautiful? Do you see how Exodus is a wonderful picture? For those of you who are visual, does that help bring it home? What does it mean that Jesus' blood saves me? This is what it means. This is what it means. We have to die unless he keeps us safe. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. Of course that means physical healing, but in this context it's talking about spiritual healing. 
I don't know what it is that you need healed from. Your heart may be broken tonight because of the struggles with sin that you face, because of the anxieties, because of the fears, because the enemy is raging. Just picture the blood of Jesus going into your heart and filling all those cracks and chasms and healing your heart. That's what the blood does. The Bible also says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, check this out, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How many of you have ever had a conscience you just want to wipe clean? I'm telling you, it is unbelievable. I'm a servant of the living God, and in five minutes I can offend God. I'm just constantly, as I grow closer to him, more and more aware of how many things I do that are dead works, that are killing me and killing the people around me, spiritually speaking. I need the blood to cleanse my conscience. Jesus' blood can wash away any sin. It doesn't matter what you've done, no matter how bad it is. The blood of Jesus over your heart can cleanse your conscience from any work that leads to death. Amen? And not just cleanse you from the work that leads to death, but give you the ability to serve a God that lives. Do you like the book of Exodus? Pretty cool, isn't it? Well, you know the story. Here's what happens. God does deliver them, and that's a picture of salvation. So he does deliver them out of the land of Egypt, but he takes them through the wilderness. Now, what's interesting, I don't know if you could see this on the map, and it's too bright probably for the laser to... To work, but we'll see see the uh, purple trail here. That's the way they probably went in the Exodus. Now God could have taken them straight up here through the land of the Philistines, but if you read it for yourself in the Bible, I don't have time to. I could. This is a whole sermon in and of itself. God said, "I'm not going to take them the short route because there's war up there, and if they go to war with the Philistines, God said, I know what's going to happen. If they face war with the Philistines, they will turn around and run and go back to Egypt." So he said, rather than have turn around and run and be slaves again, I'm going to take them a long way. It's going to be rough, and they're going to go through some doubts, but at least they won't go back to death. Now, I want to tell you something. I've said this many, many times. I have been an insulin-dependent diabetic for 27 years. I've fought a disease, and it's hard. There's very few weeks of my life that I don't cry because of the battle. But I believe that God has allowed it to be so because he knows what I'm made of. I'm an independent, self-starter kind of person. God knows I need this to keep me dependent and broken. You may not need something like that, but I do. And you know what? I'd rather live my whole life for Jesus having suffered with an illness and serve him right than not be afflicted and live without him, and die. Does that make sense? So God says, I know what they can and can't. It might be rough for them, but this is the way they're going to go. So he takes them there. Now, what is very interesting, if you read the account, here's what happens. God purposely, he led them. Does anybody remember how they knew where to go? He would lead them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Now, a lot of Bible scholars believe that that manifest presence, that that angel of the Lord that they're speaking about is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Just like a lot of people think it was Jesus that was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
I tend to believe that myself, but whether you do or not, the manifest presence of God was leading them through the wilderness. And they knew exactly where to go because there was his presence leading them. And instead of leading them any other place, God says, you know what? You're three days out. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to turn right. Instead of going further away from the Egyptians, turn right and camp right in front of the Red Sea, the top edge of the Red Sea up there. They might have thought, well, that's kind of weird. Shouldn't we, like, keep moving? But no, camp there, right in front of the sea. And they probably looked forward and looked at the sea and thought, uh, we don't have any boats. We don't have anything to make boats. What are we going to do from here? But, you know, let that go. They're sitting there for a little while, and all of a sudden they hear Pharaoh and 600 of his best chariots and all his other chariots coming from behind. Because, of course, Pharaoh, after a few days... He's looking out at his land and saying, what, why did I let all my cheap labor go? <laughs> I'm going to get them. They're helpless out there. So here they are. The sea is in front of them. And God put them there on purpose. Don't despair if you're between a rock and a hard place. God may put, have put you there. Amen? He put them there, so the sea's in front of them, and now they hear the chariots behind. And I cannot imagine what they felt. The exhilaration of being set free, they're only three days into freedom, and God puts them right where they think they're going to die. Isn't that something? How many of you in this room have ever felt that way? You gave your life to Jesus. You're living for him. But you think you're going to be destroyed it happens i'm a brutally honest preacher i'm sorry i say the things most people would never say yes there are christians who feel like god's put them somewhere and they're literally going to be destroyed but here's what happens they said to moses is it because there weren't any graves in egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness why did you do this Didn't we tell you, leave us alone that we could serve the Egyptians? Now look at the last line. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They set up a false dichotomy. They said, here's the two options. We could either be back in Egypt or we're going to die. Wrong. You could either be back in Egypt or God could save you again. They assumed God was going to kill them. Don't assume that God is going to let you be destroyed. He didn't save you to destroy you. He didn't bring you to this place to send you backwards. He's teaching you that it's all about him. And so Pharaoh comes up behind them, and they don't know what they're going to do. Have you ever been there? God, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I really don't know. The most... One of the most beautiful scriptures in the Bible happened next. Here's what God did. The angel of God that had been in front of them. Now, isn't that where God should be? Shouldn't he be out front leading? The angel of God who had been in front of them, the Bible says, when the enemy came from behind, the angel of God moved from in front. And where did he go? He came and stood behind. I love this. Because God is the creator of the universe, and I am a measly little sinner. God should not be standing behind me. Whew. 
Jesus should have never had to leave the glory of heaven. He should have never had to put on human flesh and, as Hebrews tell us, be our great high priest and suffer the same way we do. Should he? God loves us so much that when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place and the enemy is coming hard behind you and you don't know what you're going to do, guess what God does? He says, I'll come behind and be your rear guard. The God of the universe is your rear guard. Whoa. That's what I love about the way he saves them. And the angel stays behind them and becomes a dividing wall. And he gives light to the Israelites all night, but darkness and confusion to the Egyptians. And you know, the waters then part. God miraculously parts the waters. And the Israelites go through the Red Sea on dry land. And when Pharaoh and the Egyptians try to do so, what happens? They're drowned. God brings the water back in on them. And every last one of them, not one of them, survived. Here's what I want to emphasize to you. The Israelites did nothing to save themselves here, did they? They did nothing. Listen. Why is it that when we're Christians, especially when we get to be adults, we believe that God saves us by His grace, but when we start living life and it gets all nasty and hard, then we think it's up to us. Figure it out. No, it's not. The same grace that saved you is the grace that keeps you. The same God that delivered you is the God that comes behind you and will be your rear guard. God saves us, and God keeps us. This is never our battle. You never earn your way. And as if it wasn't clear enough, the next thing that happens, my last two points here, this is the next thing that happens. They're out there, and they've been out for some weeks now. God has sent the plague, sent the death angel, delivered them with the blood over the doorpost, parted the Red Sea, moved behind them, killed all the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Do you think he's done enough miracles? Now they're out in the wilderness, and like a lot of you here tonight because of the fast, they are getting hungry, okay? They've seen all these miracles, and this just so reminds me of me. I'm such a jerk face to God. Really, it reminds me of me. He's done so many things for me, and when I get hungry, when I get dissatisfied, when I'm wondering where he's at, all of a sudden I'm like, look what they did again. We wish we had died in Egypt when we had bread and meat to eat. Really? You like that? You like being beaten over the back while you're eating your bread? That was fun stuff. Okay? We wish we were back there again because you've brought us into this wilderness to, what they say again? Kill us. Come on, people. Now, I'm going to tell you right now. If, that were, if I were God in that instance, and these people that I had done all these miracles for over and over, I'd come from all my glory and stood behind them and did miracle after miracle and saved them and helped them and shown them I'm going to be faithful. And they say because their stomachs start growling, are you going to kill us? Now, if I were I would have looked down at those people and kicked them in the teeth and said, you ungrateful slime balls. You nasty people. You don't trust me yet. 
That's what I would have done. How many of you would have done that? Seriously. Now, I'm making a very, this is going to touch some of your hearts very, very deeply. You may be a jerk face to God. He may have saved you and you feel so guilty because so many times you doubt and you disobey and you fear again and you think, oh, God must not even love me anymore. I just doubt him. I just, I, I, I do, what, here's what God did. Instead of saying, I'm going to kick you in the teeth, whoops, I went too far. He says in verse 4, in response to their complaining, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. Let me say that again. They accuse God of possibly being ready to kill them as jerk face unbelievers that they are. And God says, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. I don't know who it is, but I know there are people in here. The Holy Spirit wants to tell you this right now. Yes, you may be a doubter. Yes, you may disobey. And do you know what God has to say to you tonight? If you have accepted him as your Savior, and yes, you've doubted and disobeyed, he's looking at you with eyes of love and saying, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. God's not like us, is he? God is not like us. He doesn't react to our jerkiness the way we do. He rains down bread from heaven. Now, here is here is a very important point. He does rain this bread down, but he makes one qualification. He says, here's the only stipulation. When I rain the bread down in the morning, the manna, and they, they lived on this for 40 years. When it comes down with the dew in the morning, here's the only thing. During the weekdays, only collect enough to eat for one day. And when they went out, if they collected too much, they got home and God made it so that it was just enough. And if they collected too little, they got home and it was as much as they needed. He said, here's the deal. You collect enough for one day and never, 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 God said, never hold any of it till the next morning. Weird, isn't it? And if you do hold it till the next morning, here's what's going to happen. I like the King James Version, but this is the NASB. If you do leave it till the morning, and some of them did, as you can see, guess what happened to the beautiful manna that tasted like honeys and wafers? My mom will like this. Teamed with maggots. Okay? Why? You say, what, is, what in the world does this have to do with anything? I'm going to tell you right now what it has to do with. God said, I'll give you manna every morning. When you wake up, it's going to be there. Don't you dare try to keep any from the day before till the next day. You know what God was trying to say to them? Trust me. When you wake up tomorrow morning, I will be there. Don't stockpile. Don't try to work it out. Don't have a backup plan. I will be there. Don't trust in anything but me. And when we as Christians do, when we try to do it on our own and work out life and provide our own sustenance in our own way and think that we're answering prayers in the way we want to answer them, guess what? When we don't trust, it turns into a nasty sight, doesn't it? As nasty as bread teeming with maggots. 
I don't have time to go into it because I've got to close here, but I want to encourage you. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, there was a crowd of people following him because he had fed them with the 5,000, with the bread and the fish. Do you remember that story? And because he'd fed crowds when they were hungry, those same crowds of people wanted to keep following him. They actually crossed a sea to get to him sometime later. Jesus was so not seeker-friendly. He wasn't. You would think if there were crowds of people crossing a sea to get to Jesus, what do you think? You would, the modern-day church teaches that this is what he would do. Crowds of people coming to me? Oh, come to me. What, however you feel, whatever you think about me, just come for whatever reason. It's okay. I'll take everyone and anything, no matter the status of your heart. You read it for yourself in John chapter 6. When the crowds came to him, he already knew they were coming for the wrong reason. They were coming for their stomachs to be filled instead of coming because he was God. Do you know what he did? He's so seeker friendly. He looked at them and he said, you're not coming to me because I'm the son of God. You're coming to me because your stomach was hungry and I filled it. Oh, nice welcome. No, that's what he said. He said, don't you labor for bread that perishes. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, this will make this passage make sense to you. Think about this. This is deep. He said, I am the bread of life. In other words, don't work for bread. Don't trust in circumstances. Don't try to work it out for yourself. Trust in the God who's alive and will bring to you everything you need at every single moment. And you know the people in that story, they actually said to Jesus, well, when the, when the Israelites were in the desert, God sent the manna. You know what Jesus said? Yeah, he did. And those Israelites still died. It's not about the bread. It's about the God of the bread. Your life will teem with maggots. It will be disgusting and it will be intolerable unless you trust Jesus for tomorrow morning. Don't trust your plan. Don't trust what you can do. Don't worry about tomorrow. Isn't that what he said? Tomorrow will take care of itself because I'm alive. God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's never taken off guard, is he? He will provide. We are to trust God in his work, not ourselves and our efforts. Amen? That is the last point of this message. And I think it's a good point to end on. What we've done through the book of Exodus is we've traveled from deliverance and actual salvation through the fact that God is the one who gives you the strength to go through every difficulty, right? Not yourself. No matter if you're saved or not, the grace that saves you is the grace that keeps you. Even though you doubt and disobey and are sometimes a jerk face like me, God looks at you and says, I will rain down bread from heaven, right? He is going to do it, and we're not to trust in ourselves. Do you think the book of Exodus is kind of cool? Isn't that neat stuff? I'd like you to bow your heads with me for a minute. Father, we come before you this evening, and we thank you for your word, which is truth. 
I thank you for every person that has entered into this sanctuary tonight. We've come from a lot of different places, a lot of different churches, a lot of different places that we live. We've gathered together under your providence. Lord, I want to pray right now for people who need to know that there is no hope in escaping the grip of sin on your own. It's Jesus' death that effects deliverance, and it is his blood that keeps us safe. We have nothing to fear when we pass from this life into the next with the blood of Jesus over our hearts. And for any person in this sanctuary from age 10 to 100 who is struggling with sin, in their mind with selfishness, with addictions, any struggle with sin, I pray that they would know and grasp your word tonight that it is the death of Jesus that has delivered them from their sin and nothing that they can do. And God, just as the Israelites, soon after being saved, were led to a tight spot, there are many times we are led to tight places. But you are still the Lord. We don't deliver ourselves from those places. We don't do anything but trust in you. You've come behind to be our rear guard. Though the enemy rages, and I know, Lord, that the enemy has raged against this service. He raged against me in preparation for it, and I'm sure against many who have been praying and fasting. Why? Because you are doing something great here tonight. Father, I want to pray also for those who need to know that though you may doubt and disobey, if you trust in Jesus, he will rain down bread from heaven for you. God does not react to us the way we react to others. He is faithful. Jesus is the living bread of life who will carry us into tomorrow. We don't need to stockpile. We don't need to fret. We need to trust the God that never sleeps or slumbers. Father, thank you for all these things that you have taught us. And I pray in the name of the living Jesus Christ that we would not forget these things, but that we would be changed and grow. It's a cosmic battle, Lord. Help us to keep that in perspective. When we leave, when we go to eat this meal, when we leave from this place, when we wake up tomorrow, next week, next month, God, make it always, always, always that we live with passion for you, that we see the truth behind everything, that we not waste time, waste effort, but that we pursue you madly, that we read your word and pray and seek your face and talk about you and live for you and trust in you. Don't let us be caught up in all the things that don't matter. Seal this word tonight in the hearts of many, I pray. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.